It's been said that liquidity is what's driving the share market to climb even though the economy is tanking and governments are applying the same principle in pumping money back into the economy through various stimulus packages. But what does that money need to be spent on in order for it to do its job? Logic is uh, I can go and get my data from my bank and I can in a secure way give it to whoever I choose to give it to who's in this system And they can sit there and they can go, hey, Simon's a great, you know, uh, uh, he's he's got a good income, he spends responsibly, um, and and I'm happy to lend to him. And that, that can happen digitally and quickly. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as down Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au It's not just the share market that isn't following an expected pattern through the pandemic. The property market is largely holding up pretty well too. But there is consternation over rising unemployment, the winding back of JobKeeper and JobSeeker, as well as knowing that the banks at some point will have to call an end to mortgage repayment holidays. The question must be asked, can we be trusted to use our stimulus money wisely? And is our own financial well-being necessarily aligned with that of the nation? Today, we're going to get an insight into the changing spending patterns of Australians, the industry's hardest hit, and those that are flourishing. We'll find out how many people have been making early superannuation withdrawals, whether or not they needed the money, and what they've been doing with it. Simon Bly joins us today. He's a CEO of Illion, which is a leading independent provider of data and analytics to clients in the financial services, telecommunications, utilities and government sectors. Illion gains incredible insights into the spending behaviour of Aussies and Kiwis through leveraging their consumer and commercial credit registries, which can access data on over 25 million individuals and over 2 million commercial entities. Thank you for joining us today, Simon. We've been looking forward to this chat. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Simon. I want to go directly to what Veronica just spoke about um, around super withdrawals. There's some pretty fascinating insights I'm sure you can see with how people are spending that money. Can you uh, kind of give our listeners a little bit of an understanding of what's been happening? Sure. Um, Well, I think think as your listeners will know, uh, there was an ability created to withdraw uh, $10,000, up to $10,000 of super last financial year and a further $10,000 this financial year. And uh, we've seen uh, good adoption of that. Um, obviously, um, it's uh, it's important for people to be able to access money when they need it during things like the pandemic. Um, yeah. Uh, but but there, there were, I think, a couple of problems. Uh, one is that the intent was that superannuation was only withdrawn if there'd been a drop in income. And certainly mm. when we've looked at our data, that's not always the case. Um, yeah. And, and secondly... It's, you know, it's nobody's um, right to tell you how to spend your money, uh, but yeah. you would hope that people um, are financially responsible, particularly at such a, a, a time as the present. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the superannuation is withdrawn. It's spent very quickly and it's spent on a range of things um, that, that probably is not a great use of your future pension. And what are you talking about specifically, Simon? Um, so what we see is um, uh, both last year and this year, um, uh, people withdrew money. They spent roughly a third of it to 40% within the first two weeks. Mm. And two-thirds of that expenditure was on what we call discretionary items. Um, so that includes things like um, alcohol, gambling, um, and and home delivery of, um, of of food, so Uber Eats and Menu Log and companies like that. So <laughs> things that things that you know that they're uh, uh, fun things to spend money on, 
Um, but if you've had money put away, you know, for your retirement, probably not the great use. It's a really interesting point. You, you kind of skipped over the initial kind of what makes you qualify for the super release, and that was a drop in income. And, um, you know, it's kind of coming out now that there was no real regulation around that. You could literally log on to the MyGov website, click a few boxes, and as long as you told, you know, the ATO that you had a drop in income, that they would basically release the money. And because they wanted the super withdrawals to happen extremely fast, there was no ability for them to kind of verify every application of millions of people and um, they'll basically auto-approve. Was that kind of what happened, Simon? That's right. It's essentially a trust model. So, um, you know, you have to make a declaration. Um, you have to, um, uh, you know, say that you qualify. Uh, but obviously there are there is a group of people um, who, um, uh, from our data, uh, aren't uh, telling the truth when they're answering that question. So we saw in the um, the latest round of super uh, withdrawals from our data, about 38% of people who access super hadn't seen a drop in income in co- during the COVID crisis. And in fact, about 20% of people, their income had gone up by 10% or more. Wow. So you're saying 60% of people really shouldn't have qualified, but no, still... No, th- yeah, yeah, so 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 thirty eight percent of people shouldn't have qualified, and, yeah. and of that thirty eight, um, you know, half had probably had flat oh, income, okay. and half had had an increase. Yeah, yeah. So how do you know this? <laughs> um, so 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 we we have um, we we generate uh, data that's basically anonymized. So I have no idea who yeah. it is. Uh, but real information on, on, from people's um, uh, uh, bank and credit card statements. So we, we're, not, we're not able to say Simon Bly withdrew super or yeah. you know Chris Bates withdrew super. I have no idea who it was. I just know that somebody did something. So I see the transactions, but not the person behind the transaction. And so you can join the dots between those that suddenly got 10 grand in their bank account after doing this and then what that money has literally been spent on. That's correct. So we can compare what people did before they got the 10K to afterwards. And then by looking at the changes, we can say, okay, uh, then, you know, we saw an increase in expenditure of a certain amount of money. And we can also see what category that increase was spent on. So I guess it's good for the economy in the sense that the money did go into the economy, but really bad long term and certainly for those individuals because it seems like um, they have absolutely zero understanding or zero financial literacy. Um, They're not building their buffers. They're actually taking money out of investment to just fritter away. Um, And if they really did need it, they're going to starve in a couple of weeks because they blew through so much of it in two weeks. Um, I'm a bit appalled. (laughs) What what percentage of people would you say, um, you know, are, are really can't be trusted with this money? Look, I, I think it's a very emotive sort of phrase to say trust because, because again, you know, I, I do think um, uh, it, it's probably not anybody's position to really say you can or can't spend money on something. Mm. No, except though, but in this case, we're talking about funds that have been taken out of superannuation. Yeah. You know, that... that... It it would have been good to see the rules tested. And so people who needed the money had access to it. And people who just kind of wanted to go out and have a good time um, weren't able to access it if they didn't qualify. I think once people have qualified, um, that's, that's really where... I would like to see a democracy stop and you you hope to and, and yep. then the person can do what they like with it but obviously you would hope that they're going to be sensible and they hope and you would hope um that they're thinking about um you know let me put it this way uh if you had um you know ten dollars of superannuation today might be a hundred dollars uh, when you retire so if you want to yep. put a bet on it better come in at more than 10 to 1. <laughs> A hundred percent. I think you're, you're bang on, Simon. I think the uh, the rules around it were way too relaxed and the, the trust in terms of um, 
you know, expecting people to follow the rules, I guess, um, because, you know, it was all over the papers, et cetera. It was a massive kind of cash grab by the government. They knew that they wanted to stimulate the economy. They could only do so much lifting. They needed consumers to do a bit more lifting. And um, this was a way to put money in consumers' hands so they could spend money. But, you know, there are genuinely people that, you know, are in a lot of trouble right now and are struggling and, you know, accessing their super to get them through this this bad period is is definitely something that I think is fair. And I just, I think that's where the, it all kind of went wrong. You know, the governments thought that, you know, it was good for the economy, but, you know, it, it, unfortunately some people have um, not potentially used it the right way. And we're seeing quite a bit of it in bank applications for home loans. And um, as soon as a bank sees it, um, they don't want to really go anywhere near you as a customer. So, um, you know, and that's one of the consequences that people who probably were thinking a bit short-term took the money out. But, you know, uh, a couple of months later, it's kind of coming back to bite them a bit. I have actually heard about it, you know, anecdotally about first home buyers who who accessed it so that I could beef up their um, deposit. So you're saying that actually could backfire? A hundred percent. If a bank knows that that money's come from super, they will not use it for genuine savings. And it doesn't look great on a bank application because they're like, well, the only way you got that was through hardship. And um, it was, a, you know, and then that's not what you're using for a deposit. So it's kind of like going to a, to a loan application. You've just got a short-term loan. It doesn't look great on an application. A lot of banks won't want to go near you because they know that that deposit's really just another loan. And so, um, you know, if, you, if that money has come to a bank account that they don't know about and they don't see, then maybe you could potentially, you know, they're not going to know about it. But if that's on your main transaction account where you do your spending, which is kind of what you track for a lot of people, Simon, um, it is creating problems. So the same as these payment holidays, a lot of those payment holidays that were seen as a bit of a, uh, a win-win. There was no negative to them. But if you want to apply for more finance um, or refinance, those payment holidays are starting to hurt people because banks want to see them end and for some time. Um, Simon, in terms of how many bank accounts are you really kind of seeing as a collective? What, what sort of numbers are you able to kind of track? Uh, we see about um, 50,000 accounts a month. Well, and I guess it's um, it's pretty amazing data to kind of look at as collective because you've probably got a very good broad set across the country. Yes, it, it, it's you know it, it's obviously all data has a bias, so yeah, and you need to be very conscious of that. Um, but you know, we we found that um, the amount of information we have is is pretty predictive. Um, you know, we can see. Um, trends trends that are going on um and um and certainly you know some very interesting insights emerging so before we get to that you did mention when we were talking about the superannuation that some people's incomes had gone up Mm. so before we sort of get to what we're spending let's think about how the money's coming in what sort of people are actually seeing an income increase other than those on JobKeeper that might have been casual and actually got more than before? Is there anyone else that you can, or any other industries, for instance, where you can pinpoint to actually incomes rising at the moment? Um, you know, we are, whilst the economy in general is down, there are bits of the economy uh, that are doing very well. So, you know, food delivery is going absolutely gangbusters. It's been yeah. a, elevated levels um you know since since the moment the pandemic started so i've we've not i've not actually looked at um whose incomes have, have, have increased uh, but you're certainly right um uh you know job seekers uh gener- increased certain people's income and you know if you are in bits of the gig economy and you're willing to work pretty hard um then it's certainly possible that, that you know that your income will go up in terms of our spending, um, there was a, a massive drop off because we're all in lockdown, Sydney, Melbourne, etc. And then spending sort of increased kind of back to what we were paying, you know, spending pre-COVID. And then it's dropped off again, I, th- I believe, with Melbourne sort of in lockdown. Do you think that, you know, consumer spending will bounce very quickly back and we'll go back to our old behaviours when sort of we feel safe and the economy is opening up again? I think generally that's true. Um, so, but, but you know, it, it is quite a complex picture. So, uh, you know, if, if you sort of step through the pandemic, um, 
as things started to um, hit and lockdown started to come around, we all went to the supermarkets. We all got stocked up on toilet roll. There was that kind of prepping <laughs> phase where expenditure increased. And really since then, it's been a, a story of, of two groups of people. Um, so people whose income is less than 65000 a year, you know, generally speaking, that's not a very high income and you spend uh, what, what, what you receive. There's always more bills to pay than there is more then there is money to pay them. Um, or, the, or there are things where if you get a little bit of a windfall, um, that's quite useful, you'll go and buy something. So the government stimulus was very much targeted at that group of people. It was good policy because they received the stimulus and they spent it and it went back into the economy to get that multiplier effect. And that so was the seven sort of cash payment you're talking about? Yes, that's right. So that yeah. group of people have tended to see elevated levels of expenditure um, because they've been receiving receiving government stimulus and doing things like um, you know uh, less reliance on payday loans uh, paying bills off um, you, you know more spend on children's clothing so you, you know whilst whilst it's it, you know it's it's always easy to point to the the bits of the spend that you know you, you, you might not ideally like, um, yeah. the vast majority of the expenditure, I think, has had that desired effect. At the other end of the income spectrum, you know, people whose earnings are over 104K a year, they've obviously got a little bit of flex. They don't need to spend every dollar that, that comes into the bank account. And those people have pulled back pretty hard on spend. So they've mm. said, look, I'm really, you know, maybe I'm not getting a bonus Maybe I'm a bit worried about my job. Um, maybe I just want to make sure I can continue to pay my credit card, service my loan, et cetera. So they've pulled back on expenditure by about 20% and have continued to do so. As lockdown, as lockdown um, started to cease and the economy started to open up, people had a bit of a, you know, hooray, you know, we're out. I'll go and have a haircut. I'll go back to the pub. I'll actually have a meal out as opposed to a meal delivered. So we all had a bit of a splurge. I think that's that's good for the good for the soul. Um, and then as um, you know, as Victoria started to lock down again, spending Victoria's decreased, but it's it's also been a bit of a shock to everybody's confidence. So you can see people now starting to rein back in again because they're a little bit fearful about what might happen next. And it is all about confidence, isn't it? And um, but on the flip side, as I mentioned earlier, you know that the share market and even parts of the property market have actually shown a lot of confidence. And and I've been quite surprised. I know that uh, at first, you know, back in the late March, everyone sat in their hands saying, "Oh, I'm going to eyes widened. I'm going to look around and wait and see what happens." But certainly, people sort of seem to get on with it. And certainly, there's been lots of demand for people upgrading and getting homes with extra room for a home office but there's also been quite an uptick in the home improvement side of things too right yeah absolutely so, yeah what's going on there so um yes yeah, so we we've seen very elevated spend in in home improvement um and um you know we we, we uh, dug into that and we surveyed uh, some of our consumer customers and asked them what was driving it and essentially the reason was um, during the pandemic, my employer asked me to go off on leave, take some, you know, use up, use up some of my annual leave. Um, there wasn't anywhere to go. So I couldn't, you know, zip off to Bali. I couldn't go off to the Gold Coast. I uh, couldn't necessarily go to the beach. So I had to take leave and I was at home. Uh, mm. Well, I might as well decorate the house. <laughs> Bunnings just went crazy. <laughs> Yeah, and again, it's very interesting to see how, you know, certain parts of the economy have, have benefited. You know, the other one I like looking at is pet care. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there have been lots of articles in the press about, um, you know, puppy scams and, and things like that. But uh, people uh, clearly want a bit of an emotional um, crutch and uh, spending a bit of money on the pet is, is the way to do it. So that expenditure has been up about 40% for the last three months. And I think why this is so interesting is um, what kind of Veronica said, the confidence is everything, right? And it's the same thing as sentiment. And 
you know, that drives our investment markets and drives our decisions to um, with work and, you know, swapping careers, et cetera. So, you know, if we're out there spending money, it does is a good sign that, you know, we're quite confident about the future. Um, we're not kind of battening down the hatches, et cetera. So I think it's a very interesting thing for, and I love reading your insights because of that, because, you know, it just gives us an idea of what people are doing on the ground at an aggregate level. Have you seen much around the payment holidays um, and do you have any data to know what percentage of those have had income drops? I know some of the banks are starting to release that in their reports this week, um, which are basically showing a lot of people don't need it. But have you kind of anecdotally or through your data seen that? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I think I, I probably, what I know is really through what the banks are saying. Um, yeah. So, so definitely, you know, you have a trend where I think um, more people have, uh, more people registered to have a holiday than took it up. That's the first thing. That's quite prudent. Mm. That's quite prudent. It's always good to have a plan B uh, just in case you need it. So more people registered than took it up. Mm. Um, those people who've taken it up, some people uh, need it, and some people are just doing it because they're they're prudent. You know, if, if you think mm. about the general maths you know, the, the average mortgage is somewhere around the $350,000, $400,000 mark. Um, yeah. The average interest on that mortgage is about $1,000 a month. So if somebody's taking a holiday, <clears throat> they're probably re-gearing, re-levering their house to the tune of $1,000 a month. Um, yeah. not, not a massive amount of money if you're doing that for six to nine months, but mm. could come in very useful you know, if um, if money's tight and if the, you know, your loan to value ratio is quite low and your prospects of employment or re-employment are good, that's absolutely the kind of thing that, you know, you would want people to see uh, to keep that confidence up, keep spending up and, and you know, have people avoid hardship. Um, so I, mean, so we... I, think, I think what's going to be interesting is then <clears throat> how many people who, you know, have, have lost their employment, taken up um, a holiday, and as the, you know, government stimulus and and uh, some of the stimulatory activity starts to go away, as the banks inevitably um, uh, finish these holidays and, and that, that, legit, that policy drops away, um, what happens to those people then? And there will undoubtedly be a group of people who were... Um, you know, who've got issues to deal with at that time. Yeah, I think the um, the payment holidays is a big, big number when you look at it as a percentage and the actual billions of dollars. Um, but from what I've seen and speaking to lots of other brokers, et cetera, um, the real risk is nowhere near that number. Um, and I think we're already starting to see people roll off their six months um, because it's, you know, getting to that period where you, a lot of people are just making that decision, well, it's going to end next month. I might as well just end it early. I mean, I'm okay. Um, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see what number actually get the four-month extension. Um, yeah. I think that's when we'll start to see the real number and then that's where you'll start to see the banks do a lot more assessment on those people um, and we'll actually see, you know, how many people really need these payment holidays and are struggling. And I think at the moment it's scaring a lot of people um, thinking that this, you know, 10% of property owners are, are really struggling. Um, I don't think it's anywhere near those numbers. I've heard anecdotally sort of numbers around about the 7 to 9% of some banks' loan books. I mean, do we have it? Do you have any access to that sort of data, Simon? We do, and it's it's probably not, you know, appropriate for me to mention any number that's, <coughs> excuse me, not in the public domain. <laughs> yeah, but, but maybe just, you know, one, one way to think about it, you know, I, I think Australian domestic property is worth about $6.6 trillion. You know, the, the, the entire mortgage, so everybody's mortgage added up is $2.1 trillion. So, you know, if we're, at, if we're looking at a deferral on, a, you know, a several hundred billion of that number, it's a big number, but it's, it's you know, That's nominal terms, but it's a small percentage. Mm. And remember, 2.1 trillion out of 6.6 .6 trillion. So if you look at the LVR at the national level, 
30%. Exactly right. And that, that money um, isn't evenly split across our cities. And um, a lot of that debt um, is with the younger generation because they're the ones with mortgages rather than the retirees and baby boomers who bought their houses, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and a lot of young people have bought two things. They've bought, you know, apartments, new apartments because it's cheaper um, than, say, buying houses or house and land packages. And so a lot of that debt um, is shifted in different areas of the country, which kind of uh, shows you where potentially risk is higher than, say, more established premium suburbs where, um, you know, 30 40% of the houses are paid off or 30 40% have got very low debt and maybe, you know, 10 or 20 have got quite high debt as a LVR. So That's um, right. And, and, and whilst we don't see the information, uh, and so this is kind of Simon's theory, not something I can, you know, point to data and, and, and uh, talk about. Other forms of, of, uh, of loans, other forms of payment, uh, of, of obligations, quite a lot of them are being serviced very responsibly. So credit cards are being paid off, personal loans are being paid down, payday loans are being paid down. Um, so we're seeing um, that those companies who have been uh, allowed by their regulators or, or, or commercially have decided to stay in market and keep collecting um, from, uh, from the, their, consumer, uh, their consumer customers, um, they're doing quite well. Because again, generally, generally speaking, you know, most people are willing to pay their bills they don't always have the capacity. It can come and go. Um, so, you know, if, if you've uh, taken a holiday on, uh, you, you know, your mortgage, but you're continuing to pay your mm. car loan or you're catching up on that, people might be restructuring their own individual balance sheets, uh, but they're still behaving responsibly. So we're seeing um, that, you know, people are really making an effort to use this additional liquidity that's out there um, to, you know, to make sure that they're paying their bills appropriately. It's very interesting that because obviously I think there's a temptation for some people, I've heard about this anyway, I haven't done it, but, you know, rolling their car loan into their home loan, for instance, which means they're still paying this car off in five years' time when they go and get another car, right, for another 30 years or whatever. Um, so if... People are paying down that short-term debt, you know, and using their holiday periods on their mortgage to do that and get themselves sort of in a bit of a, a better situation. Why then is afterpay, why is their share price continuing to go up? I mean, I know this is going to take in another tangent. Yeah, but look, uh, it, it's, it's um, um, what a business. Um, uh, so I have no idea whether their stock's appropriately valued. I certainly wish... Uh, <laughs> Wish I bought some when they were they were eight or nine dollars. Yeah, um, but um, but you know what's happening in buy now, buy now pay later. Look, uh, um, um, very interesting segment of the, of the industry. Um, if I go back a few years, you know, buy now pay later was focused on millennials um, yeah. and on certain segments of the market like retail. So you know your your stereotypical customer might have been a 30-year-old woman, um, probably living in a non-metro area, so, you know, not Sydney or, or, or Melbourne, um, who would uh, use buy now, pay later to uh, shop for fashion. Um, and, um, and that, you know, if, if there is such a thing as the sort of archetypal customer, uh, that yeah. might them. Times have changed. So, yeah. um, you know, we, we, all, we all got sent home on leave or, or sent home and when we weren't uh, decorating our home you know we were we were internet shopping so a big shift away from physical to digital um, and buy now pay later really popular channel um, popular payment method in a digital channel so that you know that product from zip or open pay or after pay uh, yeah. was in, in front of our eyeballs whilst we were looking at uh, different categories of spend and it's no longer retail you know you can you can after pay for your your paint and your wallpaper and your home furnishings and things like that um 
So a broader range of categories, a shift to digital, yeah. and, and a desire for people to be prudent. Why should I pay for something now when I can yeah. pay later? So um, on the one hand, you've had a real explosion in the adoption of buy now, pay later by different demographics. And on mm. the other hand, um, people have been getting stimulus, and supplement, maybe pulling a bit of money out of super, and they've been paying their bills. Um, so I think I think all of the players um, in the buy now, pay later space have had a good pandemic. And it would be very interesting to see whether what we're seeing is a permanent shift in consumer behavior or whether it's just temporary whilst we've all been locked down. Clearly, it's going to be a bit of both. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. You made a fascinating point there around the change in consumer behaviour in terms of what a COVID does as well, because it's all about, uh, you know, if you're thinking about uh, business management or personal finance management, um, cash flow and access to cash is without doubt the thing that gets you through tough times, whether you lose mm. your job or you get health or whatever it is, business or personal. And you're right, if you could potentially, instead of paying, you know, $2,000 at a big dentist um, straight up, you can split that into four payments of $500 over the next you know, a couple of months, that actually makes sense if it doesn't cost you anything. And, um, and, and that's, so that's changing the demographic that would use Afterpay because more people are saying, actually, you know what, even though I, don't, I would, traditionally I wouldn't do that when times are good, but now maybe I should just do Afterpay. I think another thing with the Afterpay success story is they've gone to the US market and um, from what I can see, they're, they're going amazing over there and you can even pay on an Afterpay card on your phone instead of paying on a visa card. So, you know, they're just innovating, um, et cetera. I mean, the, the whole, we did go down the credit card and the personal loan route. Simon, can you give our listeners a bit of an insight in terms of how our credit assessment and our credit system works here? Because it's very misunderstood around what creates a good credit rating, what you need to do to get a good credit rating. A lot of people think it's very much like an American sort of style point system. So. Can you kind of help explain how that's working and how that's potentially going to change? Sure. Um, so um, uh, everybody can see their credit score. Um, so uh, if you want to see your Illion credit score, you can go on to uh, one of my businesses called Credit Simple. So www.creditsimple.com.au. Uh, you sign in and... Um, you uh, to do that, you have to pass equivalent of a hundred point check. So, um, you know, Chris, you couldn't look at my credit score and I couldn't look at yours, and I can only see mine if I prove I, I really am the Simon Bly whose file I'm looking at. So, you go through an electronic identification process, and then you can see your score and you can see your file. So, firstly, what's on your file? That'll be things like. Uh, are you a director and what are you a director of? Um, mm. Have you ever been bankrupt or taken to court? So that information would stay there for seven years in the case of a bankruptcy, five years in the case of a court judgment. Let's say I didn't pay my, you know, my Telstra bill. Um, and I, I, I did that six years ago. That wouldn't be on my file. If I did it three years ago, it would. Mm. You also see who you've applied for credit with. So, you know, I've applied for a, an HSBC credit card, a Latitude credit card, and a, you know, a CBA mortgage, for example. All mm. of that information is on your file. That then gets put together into a pretty complex algorithm that looks at, you know, all of the adults in, in, in Australia. So it looks at 16 or so million people and how they behave and what they do. And mm. it, and it creates a prediction, which is your credit score. And that range is in a number between zero and a thousand. Virtually nobody's zero and virtually nobody's a thousand. You know, most people are somewhere in the middle. So 
let's say between 550 and 850 would be a, a large portion of the population. Mm. And then when a bank, uh, a bank comes and says, well, when I go to a bank and I say, I'd like to take out a personal loan, as part of the boxes I tick, there'll be a, a, a box that will say, are you okay if we go and check you out with a credit bureau just to see whether what you're saying is true on your application form and to see whether it's um, responsible to lend to you at, 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 you know, for the loan you want at the price, at the price that's being offered. Mm. So that bank will come into the credit bureau, they'll ask for the information, um, and they'll take that into their systems and they'll make a decision as to whether they want to offer you the loan or not and at what price. So I'd always encourage, I'd always encourage people, um, you know, you, you can know what I know about you. It's one of the obligations I have as a credit bureau that that information yep. is made freely available to people instantaneously. And the, you know, the tip I always say is go and check it out and make sure it's accurate. 100%. We do a credit check on every single client uh, before we lodge any applications. And uh, the amount of times we find issues that the client doesn't even know about, whether it's a credit card that they don't use, that it's an annual fee that they haven't paid, that they're now missing payments on. Um, it's a very common one. And, you know, their payment histories now looks like they're, you know, from a credit file, it looks like they're purposely not paying their credit card but they're just not aware of it. Um, we've had credit card fraud. We've had, um, you know, facilities not closed when they thought they were closed. You know, lots of things that you can find out that you don't know about. And um, sometimes you can get really relieved because you go, well, actually, I've got a really good credit report because, you know, um, I haven't done anything wrong. So the best thing, go to Credit Simple is probably a good tip there, Simon. <laughs> we'll put the, sh- the link in the show notes. But what can you do if you find that uh, there's some inaccuracies or that you've sort of stuffed up because you've missed yeah. a few Great question. So uh, when you're on the platform, there's a little tab and it says dispute this. You just click on that button. You get a drop-down list uh, that can recommend, you know, that says, and, and, and Chris is exactly right, I'd like to dispute that credit card because actually I cancelled it. That's that's a pretty common one. Um, so well, what if you can't dispute it though? What if you actually have been a bit remiss? And... So, so if, if you've been a bit remiss, you just have to wait and eventually the data disappears. So um, usually between, um, uh, so, so there's a, a, a data retention period for each type of data. So I was a bit late paying my credit card. That will live with you for two years. Two years, yeah. I didn't wow. pay my electricity bill or my phone bill and I got defaulted. That will live with you for five years. Wow. And I was, I was bankrupt. That will live with you for seven. Now, why, why, why is that there? Um, it's there to protect everybody else. So, you know, financial institutions have obligations to lend responsibly. They don't want to give money to people who can't actually have any foreseeable way of um, paying it back. So they just sink deeper into debt. You know, the, the, the whole Wagyu and Shiraz thing with Westpac was about that. So banks yeah. have obligations that they treat very seriously to lend to people responsibly. And at the end of the day, you know, if people don't pay their bills, um, or those people who do pay their bills pay, pay, pay a little piece on top for people who don't pay. So, you know, if you're out there paying, you know, 50 bucks a month for your, your phone bill, um, some of that, it, you're, you're compensating the telco for all of the people who don't pay. So, mm. um, you know, it's, it's sort of a, the strength of the community is stronger if people can access the services that they should be allowed to at a price that's appropriate mm. for them. And that obviously includes an assessment of credit risk. The waiting's interesting, you know, five years for telco or your power bill and only seven if you're bankrupted. Yeah, and that's set in legislation. The bankrupt bit or all of it? <laughs> all, all, all of it. And, right, and what, right. And what you tend to find is, um, you know, people's, um, uh, it's, it's what you're doing most recently which has the biggest impact on your score. Yeah. So mm. if you did something five years ago, look, five years ago, uh, you know, you might, you might have been young and reckless, 
you know, it was pre-pandemic, you, you know, you're at uni, uh, you, you know, everybody understands that, um, uh, you, you know, you're a little riskier when you're younger. So that kind of mm. information doesn't have a big impact on the score. And certainly uh, uh, the the bank will look at that typically and go, we understand that. And, and yeah. you, know, you might have something there, but it doesn't matter. If you, if you didn't pay your credit card bill the last two or three months, that's important. 100%. I think if just knowing your credit score, if you haven't ever done it, you don't know what's on your credit file. Um, it's very easy to do, which is obviously what you're alluding to in terms of your website. But, you know, if, and then if there is issues, you can dispute it. And sometimes you can get even lawyers involved to dispute things and get them off your credit file, et cetera, yeah. which we've had. What, what I would advise everybody to do, there's lots of companies out there who will charge you a lot of money to clean stuff up. Don't yeah. go down that path. <laughs> uh, because we all have obligations. I have obligations to help people do it and, and for free. And you know, and if I'm if I'm liaising with a bank and I'm asking them, they have to do it for free. So nobody needs to get their hand in their pocket to get their credit file accurate. It's a really interesting point. Interesting. <laughs> it's just about probably understanding where to go and what to do and who to write to, etc. Um, and how to position your case, which I think sometimes people probably don't know what to do there. In terms of people when they're lo lodging lots of applications, there's a, um, you know, I've never done it, but, you know, I've seen, I've got friends who have done it and clients, et cetera, where they, they love the frequent flyer points, which are a bit useless at the moment, and they've recycled credit cards, et cetera. Um, how do you think that those sort of behaviours where there's lots of applications for credit and even if, if they get approved, they pay them all on time and they close them, but, do you th does that sort of affect your credit rating or is it? Um, it, 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 it does. So, again, when you're looking at millions of people, um, you know, I can't work out who's a points junkie versus who's been quite rash. So, you know, there are certain behaviours that are risky. Uh, one mm. of those behaviours is applying for lots of things all at once. Yeah. Um, so, again, what you should do instead is you should go and have a look at your score you should go and really study and look at the kind of products that you'd be interested in. And then you pick the one or the two that you want. Don't apply for 10 and take one or two. Work out which are the one or two you want to go for and go, go only for them. Um, another behavior that's risky is having lots of credit cards. So again, if you look at the population and you find people who've got maybe five credit cards from five different financial institutions, they're a factor more risky than the person who's got one card from one bank. And so if you have those cards and you don't need them, chop them up. But you have to do more than chop them up, right? You have to go in and you cancel have to close them. The account. You well, you might end up getting those annual charges you don't know about. No, that's right. You close the account and you check on your credit file that it shows as closed. So, Simon, there's a big shift, um, and it's, it's not a shift, it's legislation around open banking where, um, you know, the idea is behind to stop the big four being the big four and hopefully there's a big ten. Um, but, you know, to create competition within, you know, the banking system for all products, not just home loans, um, by allowing, you know, consumers to share their data um, much more easily across different banks, basically. Can you kind of explain to our listeners how that's such a big shift and hope what some of the hopeful outcomes you see might happen? Yeah. No, look, it's a it's a it's a great piece of legislation and whilst we often talk about open banking re, what what the uh, banking is the first consumer data right. So essentially what the legislation says is you know, that information is yours and it's yours to use for your benefit and you can go and get it. Mm. Um, and there's going to be a number of data rights. The first one is open banking. The next one is in relation to energy. And the one after that is in relation to telecommunications. And the logic is uh, I can go and get my data from my bank and I can, in a secure way, give it to whoever I choose to give it to who's in this system and they can sit there and they can go, hey, Simon's a great, you know, uh, uh, he's, he's got a good income, he spends responsibly, um, and, and, and I'm happy to lend to him. And that, that can happen 
digitally and quickly. So rather than a fatiguing process where you've got to fill in lots of paper, it goes into a process and six weeks later, you know, there's kind of white smoke above the Vatican and you get your mortgage. It can happen in hours. Well, interesting about that in terms of timing, because of course, um, you know, I think it's fairly well known that a number of these banks have got a lot of their mortgage processing uh, facilities set up in India, which is obviously suffering a lot from COVID and had, I think, a number of shutdowns. So that slowed things down. You know, we've heard lots of blowouts, hearing applications taking upwards of three weeks, whereas before they might have been turned over in a week. Um so will open banking actually smooth all of that out, even with mortgage applications as well? Absolutely. So open banking is one of a series of uh, data sources and, te- and, mm. and um, you know, uh, underpin, uh, uh, tied in with technology changes, which are, uh, you know, really accelerating um, the ability to handle things digitally. So, yeah. you know, w- one of my customers, uh, uh, an online mortgage lender called TikTok, uh, they yep. can do a simple mortgage in, in a period of less than two hours. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, TikTok have solved it. Um, a lot of the rest of the market are, uh, are moving there as quickly as they can. Um, yeah. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a good thing because at the end of the day, uh, the less friction there is in the process, the more likely you are to reprice your finances um, yep. and, mm. um, and and the more competition there'll be for you if you're a good credit. 100%. It's all about the line of least resistance. If you made that line really difficult, i.e. having to go to bank branch to refinance your mortgage, um, people's apathy and, uh, you know, other things that are more enjoyable in life take their attention and, um, you mm-hmm. know, the finances over time just get forgotten about. But if you make that process really smooth and, not onerous um, in terms of asking for too many documents, et cetera. Um, hopefully what you'll see is that, you know, people will start to, to move their money around to get themselves a better deal, which is ultimately better for consumers, but not great for the banking profits. Do you see, Simon, that um, we will move to a more, you know, at the moment, like if you're looking at home loan rate, they don't look at you as a credit file and say you're more risky than others. They just look at your LVR and, they'll basically give you a rate based on that a lot of the time. You know, there are little, you know, intricacies to the rating in terms of the pricing. But do you see that uh, the banks will potentially start pricing much more on an individual level and start to reward the customers that are a lot lower risk with a lot lower rates and potentially those with higher risk and with higher rates um, in, in all different products, not just home loans? Yeah, look, I think that's right. I think there's going to be greater price differentiation in unsecured yeah. credit rather than secured. Because you're quite right. At, at, you know, at the end of the day, Chris, that LVR protects the bank. So whether my credit scores 750 or 800, um, what's much more important is that my LVR is 80% or 95%. Mm. Um, and, and, and so from a property perspective, um, credit risk will be a factor in the pricing, um, but it's not going to make the difference between paying 2.5% and 2%. It's a very different story from looking at a personal loan or I'm looking at a credit card. That's where the spreads will be a lot bigger. Because that's really it comes down to where the risk is, isn't it? I mean, you can have a really, really frugal, smart person who's really, uh, not smart, but uh, who's really good at paying their bills, but buys a dud property. Um you know, doesn't go up in value and the LVR is, as you say, what protects the bank there. But you could also have someone who's a bit more cavalier and by luck, sheer luck because they're not really good at spending, saving or managing their finances, they, but they'd manage to buy a better asset. Mm. That, that's right. And, and you know, your, your, um, your income and your expenditure are going to become uh, big, big factors in your access to credit and the price at which you get it. So, you know, when a bank's making a credit assessment, they're complex things and they take into account lots of factors. Your credit score, how responsible it is to lend to you. You know, um, are you in the gig economy and that your income can come and go or are you a salaried employee working for a stable employer? So um, income and expenditure is, is also really important. So 
you kind of uh, the Shiraz and Wagyu case that you um, kind of mentioned, I don't know, 10 minutes ago, um, but that was a huge case between Westpac and ASIC that uh, I personally watched extremely closely because I think it uh, was one of those things that was having a huge impact on the property market in terms of a lending and lending drives a lot of the property market um, because access to credit, um, you know, completely changes the dynamic. What was your view on that case? Uh, if you, I'm not sure if you're able to provide your personal opinion on it, but what were some of the, the positives and negatives and the flaws with it? Look, it was obviously very complex because, you know, it, boy, it went on for quite a few years, right? Yes. And, it, and, yeah. and it went through um, various courts and, and um, um, you know, uh, uh, lots of, uh, you know, lots of determination. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think what's um, a little unsatisfactory is mm. it still doesn't massively help the banks on what is responsible lending. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, case law has kind of determined that Westpac did lend responsibly, good for them, um, but, but where's the line? <clears throat> and I think a lot of the market are still a bit confused about that. So my, my personal view uh, mm. would be that if we had some clearer rules, um, then everybody knows where they stand in order to be the right side of the line. We've got a very responsible financial infrastructure in Australia. Everybody strives to be compliant. And I think it would be useful if we could give them some clarity as to what is compliant and what isn't. And there's still there's more guidance out there about that now but it's still subject to quite a bit of interpretation. And you'd rather not have uncertainty in that area. I'm sure ASIC would not have, rather not have uncertainty. And I'm sure Westpac would have rather not spent all that money on lawyers to be proved right <laughs> at the end of the day. Well, that's exactly right. I think ASIC are going to release some more guidance around it. It's just whether the banks want to follow that, um, if that is a bit too prescriptive. Um because, you know, their business is basically built on lending growth, right, and across all their avenues, but mainly home loans is a big chunk of their sort of profits. Um, and it's just very interesting as a broker to be watching bank credit policy change because it, it tightened up ridiculously tight with the Royal Commission and all the banks uh, were freaked out and went through a forensic line-by-line looking at people's expenditure. Some banks sat on the fence and said, we're not going to go to that detail we don't think we have to for responsible lending. And their business has boomed because they were a much easier way to get a home loan. And just in the last couple of months, we're starting to see most banks go back the other way and start to say we don't really want to look at transactions again, um, which is just interesting because uh, that's kind of what it used to be like. So we thought we're heading in a new direction and then now people are going back to the olden ways. So it's uh, a case to keep watching. Is that partly because fundamentally, you know, property is so important to this nation's economy and so, you know, you tighten it, tighten it up too tight and everything grinds to a halt, we've got a pandemic and there's other reasons why we want money in the economy? I think there's probably a big picture of you, yes, that's probably right. I think the, um, the government's RBA, uh, you know, are all sort of out there saying, lend money, lend money. Um and the banks are saying, well, what's being, I want to lend responsibly. What can I do and what can't I do? And um, I think Simon's hit the nail on the head. They're not really sure, right? And so, um, but fundamentally, everyone wants, the government's wanting the banks to lend money, right? So, yeah. I think um, Simon's, right. and, and, and everybody wants clarity. Yeah. Simon, do you have a property dumbo for us? Yeah, look, uh, we've kind of touched on it. So, so my dumbo is, um, I, in fact, I'm the kind of Dumbo because uh, I'm one of those classic people who the banks make lots of money on. I've got a low LVR. I've got a good credit score. Um, I have a job. Um, and, um, and I haven't taken the time to go and reprice my mortgage. Um, so whilst I've been happily dishing advice out here, um, I'm not. I'm not actually. I'm not actually sort of uh, you know eating my own dog food or sipping my own champagne. Yeah. And that digital process now is pretty good. So yeah. you know there are ways that you can 
you know, use your data, um, go and uh, go and get a, a new mortgage and do so quite quickly and efficiently, uh, not as onerous as a process as it, as it used to be, and save yourself a bit of money. So um, if you've got a good credit risk and a good income and you haven't refinanced your mortgage for a while, go out and do it. But check, <laughs> check credit simple first, just to make sure yeah. that you are a good credit risk. So I think a lot of Australians are taking um, that up. We've had the biggest, uh, not me personally, you know, but the biggest, um, you know, rise in refinances ever um, and billions and billions of dollars are, are getting refinanced now because I think people are having that time to look at their their mortgage. Um, and, and the problem with that, Simon, is that people think what was a good rate in 2014, 2015 was about a 1% to 1.2% discount. I remember when we got a 1.25 and we're like, wow, this is huge. Um, but now discounts could be even 1.9 or 1.85 or yeah. 1.95. So, you know, depending on your situation, you could be 50 to 70 basis points under, which is about, you know, if you times 0.505 times whatever your loan amount is, that'll give you an idea. So it's five grand on a million dollar loan in your pocket after tax. So, um, some big savings out there by just, you know, looking at. Um, it, it, it's very significant. And, you know, whereas a few months ago, you might have sat there and what do we do on a Saturday morning? You know, I'll, I'll take, do I want to, you know, refinance my house or go and watch the kids at sport? Well, you can't watch the kids at sport at the moment. So go and refinance your house. <laughs> very good. Just one final thing around sort of personal finance management tools. Um, What's your view on on sort of these sort of apps and things like that? Do you do you see that they're quite gimmicky? Do you see that they're quite um, you know strong in terms of helping people better understand their finances, or you know do you see them progressing a lot? I guess. Yeah. Look, um, they're, they're really useful tools. So um, uh, again, on you know on Credit Simple, there's an app within there called Money Simple. You can load in your bank account, oh, yeah. visualize your spend. You know, if you're a director of a legal entity, you can go and look at the uh, the credit uh, score of that legal entity for free as well. Um, you know, there are some great apps out there that help you robo-save. There are some great apps out there mm. for, for kids uh, to, you know, teach them uh, financial literacy. Um, so it's a super innovative space. Um, and, you know, I think it's... Uh, I think at the end of the day, um, financial literacy is really, really important. And the more people understand um, where to get good credit, um, what pitfalls to avoid, you're going to make better decisions um, on the biggest decisions in your life, um, the more that you understand the issue. And these personal financial management tools um, are, are, are you know, a key way in which um, in which um, uh, somebody can do that. So um, I'm a big fan of them. Um, I, I use them myself while I run one. Um, I, I think they're uh, they're very important. And again, as we move into this world where um, you know things are digital, um, there's a lot more choice uh, amongst financial providers out there. They're a, they're a good way of understanding what's out there in the market that can suit you. I think it's a very good snapshot, to be honest. I think all the banks are moving in this direction. Um, and then you can use ones that include multiple banks, um, you know, like your tool, I imagine, does. And, you know, what's the, I don't know what the saying is. I always uh, laugh when I try to say a quote, but, you know, you can't improve what you don't measure, basically. And, um, you know, that's basically the thing with, with spending. You can't really track or try to, look at where you potentially have your leaking money or potentially overspending or where you're very good, um, you know, in terms of much under the averages, I guess. So um, I definitely think looking at your expenses for a period is is quite um, insightful to know how, how you're actually living your life. So thank you very much for today, Simon. Uh, Veronica's microphone's not working, so she said thank you as well. But I really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider. So this week's elephant rider training is? I think the most important thing to understand is the, uh, when you're looking to borrow money is how much you can borrow um, and how will a bank look at your application. And I think what we are starting to see is a few mistakes that 
people are potentially making that, you know, are, are giving banks that when this file is potentially on the border of whether they want to do it or not, is enough just to tip it over the edge and for the bank credit assessor to change their view on whether they want you a customer or not. So we did see this pre-COVID, we did see the afterpay um, and multiple applications for credit cards like Zip Money, Liberty, um, impacting applications when things were super tight, especially when they were in lenders' mortgage territory. Um, and we did have one case in particular that was declined, and this customer was earning over $300,000 a year, um, was buying um, well in their capacity but was borrowing at 90% and the lender's mortgage insurer knocking them back. Um, and really the reason was after pay and a $1,000 credit card. So just be really careful with using those sort of things if you're looking to borrow money. The second thing is that the super withdrawal, if you've already done it, um, you can't go back in time and put the money back in the super. Um, so you just got to be aware that banks aren't looking at that very favorably, but it is what it is. Um, and the payment holidays, if you are thinking about refinancing or upgrading your home or buying an investment property or anything like that in the next, you know, three to six months, I'd go and call up and end any payment holiday straight away rather than extending it or letting it drag out because it doesn't look great in the bank's eyes that you just maximise the six months even though you didn't need it. So um, try to remove those and they won't look at any application until you're at least a few months back in payment at the moment is what they're saying but we don't really know because not many people have ended um, or have had them and then are looking for credit so i just try to get on the front foot and end those payment holidays if you're thinking about borrowing more money or refinancing i think i'll just add one more thing i think what really alarmed me when uh, Simon was talking about the way in which, um, you know, 38%, well, he talked about 38% of people that had accessed their super early didn't actually need to. And there was a high percentage of people who had spent the money, I think he used the word frivolously, and if he didn't, well, I'll use the word. When you look on their website, and we'll include the link in the uh, show notes um, for the, the way in which these dollars have been spent, gambling is really high on the list. Quite a lot of money has been spent um, of this super money on gambling. And I just think that just shows a high level of financial illiteracy, but it also shows an addiction. And um, I guess if you're listening to this, you're probably not in that category. But if you know anyone, I just encourage them to go and get some psychological help for that addiction because I just think it's absolutely um, heartbreaking really. So gambling, um, like you said, is an addiction potentially for some. Some potentially don't see it that way um, and they just see it as a bit of fun. But, you know, I think like if anything, you're spending your, your super money that you've withdrawn and a, a large amount of it on gambling, it's more than just a bit of fun. Yeah, and that's just, and, uh, you know, it's, it's quite a touchy subject because, you know, it's, it's pretty horrible, you know, the, um, the addiction of gambling and how powerful it is and, um, you know, that people are stuck in. In that situation, they do need to get some help, et cetera. But uh, from, a, from a purely loan point of view, if I was going to talk about that, um, without doubt, we've had applications declined when um, banks have seen that there's been gambling activity on the file um, when they looked at transactions. So, you know, it doesn't look great from a bank point of view as well. So if you are looking to borrow money, that's one of the behaviours which Simon talked about on the podcast that a bank may look at and may the credit assessor may say, I'm not comfortable with that because of that behaviour. So it's just another thing that, you know, if you if you are looking to borrow money, you wouldn't want, you know, a bit of money on Bet Easy to be stopping you buying your first home. Um, it'd just feel a bit pointless, wouldn't it? So I think you just got to be very careful of these sort of things when you're looking to apply for credit. Join us for our next episode. We have a very light-hearted one coming your way. You know, what's been happening through COVID is a lot of people are becoming quite creative and, and coming up with different ways to entertain digitally. Well, we've got Jimmy Thompson coming back and he's joined by writer Warren Coleman. You know, the pair of those have actually put together a podcom, which is a podcast comedy all about the trials and tribulations of living in strata. 
It's mostly humorous, but it doesn't mean we're not learning anything because there are a lot of lessons to be learned through the comedy and the weird ways people behave. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.